All right, church, don't mind them. They're going to be cooking food so that when I'm done, we can eat. I feel like some people disappeared. All right. Oh, no problem. All right, well, hey, thanks for coming out today to our church in the park. It's a little smoky, but it's all right. It's not too bad, right? Hopefully it won't be too much of a problem. This is our eighth anniversary potluck barbecue. We say it's been eight years because it has been. It's been eight years since we huddled uh, in front of that fireplace at Starbucks. Peter was out there. My dad was out there. Uh, there was Jesse, Gage, Brad, Stephen. Stephen was even, I don't, is he even around? Where'd Stephen go? Oh, he's right there, hiding. Right. His beard was a little shorter, but, but he was there too. And of course, if you followed us, you know that those prayer meetings in front of the uh, fireplace there at Starbucks led to Bible study uh, at uh, the Bridge Church on Thursday nights. And that's when uh, Ed and Perla joined us there. And uh, we did that for most of the rest of 2015. And then 2016, we went to evening services at the View Church in Clearview. And which is now called something else, The View, The View Church. They were called Four, yeah, whatever. They had a different name. And Clearview Foursquare. See, once they change their name, you can't, right? And that, of course, led to morning services at the Grange back in January of 2017. This is August of 2023. We've been meeting at the Grange for six and a half years, but it's been eight years since we started meeting to form the church. So besides the fact that we like food and fellowship, which we do, Acts 2.42, one of the key verses for our church, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers, we have these anniversary potlucks to remind ourselves from where the Lord has brought us and how faithful he has been with his work in and through us, his church. So the anniversary potluck that we do, it's not really about us, about us just looking behind, as in you know, looking back, you know, how great it was back in the day. It's not just about that. But in reality, we do these things to encourage us as we continue forward, straining towards what lies ahead. One of the things that I look at as an example of why we do anniversary potlucks happens to be the feasts. And you guys know that Israel has a lot of feasts, and all the feasts have a, a past and a future uh, to them. They look back as well as they look forward to remind Israel of God's faithfulness, and they also pointed to a coming fulfillment as well. If I can give you an example, for some of these are easy and you might know them. But the Passover, for example. The Passover is a reminder of the Exodus. We watched a couple of Moses movies this last week. We watched the Ten Commandments with, uh, uh, what's his name? Charlton Heston, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, they, they took a few liberties with the Bible, but uh, it's a spectacle to behold, especially in 4K, if you haven't watched it, and it's remastered uh, craziness. It's a spectacle to watch. My kids were actually quite amazed, weren't you? Because you're like, this movie was made in 1956. Look how great it is. Right? They couldn't believe that it actually looked as good as it did. And we also watched The Prince of Egypt, the animated one. 
So we've been on this Moses kick, but so you know what the Passover, of course, refers to is they look back to the Exodus as they were coming out of Egypt, and of course it reminded Israel of God's faithfulness uh, and provision. And so it found a future fulfillment, though, in Christ, right? So, oh, of course, you remember the Israelites, they painted the blood over their doors because the destroyer was coming. And that blood over their doors protected their firstborn from being killed. And that's one of the things it reminds them of when they look back at the Passover about how God protected Israel through the blood of the Lamb. Well, of course, the future fulfillment of the Passover is Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. His blood was shed on the cross on Passover. So Jesus, therefore, is our Passover Lamb. Right? And the blood of Jesus allows God's judgment to pass over us, sinners, and gives life to us as believers. Along with the Passover, you also have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and you have the Feast of Firstfruits. Those go together. They go together because the Feast of the Firstfruits happens on the second day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But they also look back to the Exodus, and they remind Israel of God's faithfulness, and they also have a future fulfillment as well. Of course, when we look at the Unleavened Bread, unleavened, uh, the, the sign of leaven in bread is a picture of sin. Christ was sinless, therefore the bread was unleavened. Of course, Christ is also the bread of life, so that's a fulfillment in Christ. But you also have um, the first fruits, which is interesting, because 1 Corinthians, I don't know if you guys know this, but 1 Corinthians 15.20 says, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Well, you have the festival of first fruits. If you combined the unleavened bread with Passover, as it would be often, you have an eight-day feast because Passover would happen first, and then you have the unleavened bread, which is a seven-day feast. But on the second day of the unleavened bread, you have the first fruits. If you count from Passover, day one, the first day of the unleavened bread, and then the second day of the unleavened bread, which is the first fruits, what day is that then? It's the third day. When was Christ resurrected? On the third day, right? So, Christ, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. It's another one of their festivals, right? Pentecost means 50, so you have 50, right? That, that was the celebration of the end of the grain harvest for Israel. They had a future fulfillment when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church in Acts 2, 50 days after the resurrection of Christ. Now, all those that I mentioned have all been fulfilled already in Christ. But some of the other feasts that they have, for example, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Tabernacles, these feasts have a future fulfillment that haven't been fulfilled as of yet, but will be. We know that the Feast of Trumpets was a time of rest for Israel, but we believe that the Feast of Trumpets will be fulfilled on the rapture, right? For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord, as it tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The Day of Atonement, of course, prophetically points to the second coming of Christ. And on that day, when the remnant of Israel is going to look upon him whom they have pierced and repent of their sins and receive Jesus as their Messiah, and then you have the Feast of Tabernacles, 
which was back in the day to remind Israel of when God tabernacled with them while they were wandering in the desert. But also, it's going to have a future fulfillment when God once again comes to the tabernacle with his people and rule and reign on earth. Now, here's the thing about the Feast of Tabernacles. Of all the feasts that are currently celebrated by Israel, the Feast of Tabernacles is the only one that we know that will be celebrated in the future by all nations that are left after the tribulation during the millennial reign. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. It tells us in Zechariah 14, 16, and it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So that's interesting. So when you look at the feast, you see the past, you see the future. And that kinda, that's kind of a guide for me when why we hold these potluck, anniversary potlucks, as we're looking back at God's faithfulness, but we're really looking forward to what God is doing for us. So I told you all that just to tell you that. That really is not your message for today. Right? I just told you all that to, to remind us, because what are we looking forward to? We're looking forward to the blessed hope that's found in Christ. We're looking forward to, we're looking to be reminded of the future promises that have yet to be fulfilled, but will be fulfilled in Christ. That's what we're looking forward to, right? And on which, which we stand firm and we stand awake and we're sober with eyes looking up as our redemption draws near, as it tells us. So I do have a message this morning and the message is in Jeremiah 32. And I came across it quite by accident. It really, I, I, to be honest, I never put together long messages for this. I always try to come with just something short so we can get straight to the food and the fellowship. And we don't have to, you know, you don't have to sit here and listen to me for 45 minutes. But I typed out the message and I thought, I'm like, okay, this is like a shorter message. And then I typed it out and I'm like, this really isn't any short. I, I thought I was making this a shorter message, but maybe I didn't. So that's okay. Because Pat's here. Right. So it comes from Jeremiah 32. And if I was to give it a title, I would call it a field of redemption. And I just saw somebody quote a verse from Jeremiah 32. I thought it was a great verse. I went to Jeremiah 32 just to, to read the verse. And then I realized what the whole passage was about. And I realized, well, this is my message. This is what I'm supposed to talk about. And I wish my computer would quit acting up on me. So we're jumping into the middle of a story in Jeremiah 32. Okay. Let me uh, get this thing down. Be quiet. There we go. All right, so we're jumping into the middle of a, a long multi-chapter story. Right, I'm not starting at the beginning of the story. We're, we're kind of coming in actually toward, more towards the end of the story, more than anything. And I'm not going to touch on every little bit of the story, but I'm just going to try and break it down for you so you can understand the context of what's going on here in Jeremiah 32, what's going on with Jeremiah, what's going on with Israel, etc. Okay? So, Jeremiah is a prophet. All right? He was a bullfrog. He was a good friend of mine, but he is a... The kids don't get that one. But he was... A prophet. He was, as a matter of fact, the last prophet of God that God sent to the northern kingdom, which would be Judah and Benjamin. And he sent, the, he sent Jeremiah to the northern kingdom to warn them of their idolatrous behavior. To put it simply, the northern kingdom didn't listen to Jeremiah. Okay? So, in chapter 32 here, Jeremiah is in prison. Sort of. I mean, I don't know how 
terrible of a prison it was. It says that the king imprisoned him, yet it says that he's shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. So it may not be the big, bad, dirty dungeon, right? but it was a, a, a prison nonetheless. He may not have been behind bars. He may have been more on house arrest. I don't know how bad it was, but it was within the palace, but he's in prison. Why is Jeremiah in prison? Right, exactly, because he told them the truth. Jeremiah is in prison because he spoke, he spoke God's word. Right, we'll go more on that in just a second. Who put Jeremiah in prison? Zedekiah put Jeremiah in prison. Zedekiah is the king of Judah. This was the 10th year of Zedekiah's reign. He rules for 11 years. He was the last king of Judah. He ends up dying in Babylon. What? You say, what? Not in Jerusalem? No, in Babylon. Because Jerusalem is under siege by Babylon. Right? In Zedekiah's ninth year on the throne, he rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. Who is Nebuchadnezzar, you say? Right? Well, it's technically Nebuchadnezzar II, but, oh, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. And this is the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar, as it tells us in this chapter. Anyway, because of the rebellion, Nebuchadnezzar is laying siege upon Jerusalem. And then the long story short, in the 11th year of Zedekiah's reign, the city fell to Babylon. We are in the midst of that siege right now in Jeremiah chapter 32. This is what's happening in Jeremiah chapter 32. Now, during the siege, Zedekiah goes to Jeremiah and he asks him to intercede to the Lord. Right? Please intercede to the Lord for us so that Babylon right, does not destroy us. Jeremiah does. He intercedes to the Lord. Yet the word of the Lord that came was not the word that Zedekiah wanted to hear. All right? Because the Lord says, I'm giving Jerusalem to Babylon. It's going to fall. All right? Zedekiah did not want to hear that. That was not what he wanted to hear. All right? So what the Lord told him is, retold to us right here, starting in verse 3, going through 5. Let me read it really quick. It says, For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, Jeremiah, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord? Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face and see him eye to eye. So Zedekiah comes in and says, Why are you saying these things? Thus saith the Lord, that we're going to fall to the Babylonians and blah, blah, blah. Right? Why are you telling me this? This is not what I want to hear. I don't accept the answer that you've given me. Right? Because Zedekiah, here's the thing. Zedekiah had other prophets in the kingdom. And the other prophets of the kingdom came to Zedekiah and they gave him a favorable answer. They gave him the words he wanted to hear. Right? They lied to him, basically. They say, oh, Zedekiah, everything's going to turn out great. No worries, buddy. No worries at all. The Lord loves you. Jerusalem's not going to fall into the Babylonians' hands. It's good. Go ahead. Go on your vacation. Get your rental property. Uh, you know, do whatever. Throw the barbecue. It's not going to be a problem, Zedekiah. Everything's good. He goes to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, you're a prophet of God. What does the Lord say? The Lord says he's going to give Babylon, the Jerusalem to Babylon. They're going to conquer the city. You're going to be taken out into captivity. And that's how it's going to end. He was like, What? I didn't want to hear that. That's not the word I want to hear. So this is where we are. You understand? Right? 
Zedekiah didn't accept the answer. He liked the lies much better. But let me tell you, you can't build a house on the sand if you know what I mean. Right? A false gospel, no matter how appealing, no matter how warm and fuzzy, is no gospel at all. He had been given a false gospel. It was a lie. He liked it better than the truth. Regardless, it didn't work for him. Zedekiah wanted a favorable answer from the Lord, but he didn't get it. And Jeremiah wouldn't compromise on his message. He wouldn't change his message. Anybody with ears to hear can see so many different applications out of Jeremiah 32 here. He wouldn't change his message. He wouldn't lie. He wouldn't water down the message concerning God's word. So here we are. Jeremiah's in jail. That's where he got thrown because of telling the truth, of telling God's word. So Zedekiah comes to Jeremiah and he says, why did you prophesy these things? What? Why did you prophesy these things? And the answer he receives from Jeremiah may not be the one you expected. All right? This is what Jeremiah says. I'm going to start in verse 6 and read through verse 15. Jeremiah says, The word of the Lord came to me, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalem, your uncle, will come to you and say, so this is Jeremiah's cousin, By my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. And then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, Buy my field that is at Ananoth in the land of Benjamin for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord, Jeremiah says. And I bought the field at Ananoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. And then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the, gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Messiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. I charged Baruch in the presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, the house, house and fields and vineyard shall again be bought in this land. I'm pretty sure that when he starts telling this to Zedekiah, Zedekiah's like, why did you prophesy this? He says, well, let me tell you this story. My cousin came to me wanting to sell me some property in Jerusalem, outside of Jerusalem, actually, about three miles. A field in our hometown. It's, it's Jeremiah's hometown, Ananoth. He's like, what does this have to do with the message of God that you gave me about the Babylonians going to take down Jerusalem? God told me to purchase this field, he says. And so I did. Right? I mean, it must have seemed like a strange response to Zedekiah's question, right? It must have seemed like a strange request to Jeremiah when he got the word from the Lord, right? Jeremiah, yes, Lord. Thank you for answering me. I'm in prison. I was waiting for a word from you, Lord. What is it you'd like me to do? Buy some property. What, Lord? I want you to buy some property. Your cousin's going to come to you, and he's going to sell you some land, and I want you to buy it. What? Buy some land. You're not going to set me free? No. Buy some land. You're not going to get me out of here? No. I want you to buy some land. You want me to buy a field? Yes. Okay. I mean, it must have seemed like an incredibly strange request to him. 
I want you to think about it for a second. The land that the Lord tells Jeremiah to buy, the land which Hanimal, the cousin of Jeremiah, is coming to sell him as a field at Ananoth. It's roughly three miles, like I said, outside of Jerusalem. With the Babylonian armies surrounding Jerusalem, what it means is, is that the enemy already occupies this land. The enemy is already set up camp in the field. The land is overrun by the enemy, by the Babylonians, right? So Jeremiah was offered by family, by his cousin, to purchase land, purchase this field that was already under Babylonian control, right? And hopefully the 17 shekels that he pays for this field is the steal of a deal. I think that his cousin made out on the deal, you know, not him. It really wasn't about whether or not he was getting a good deal or not. It was the fact that the Lord asked him to buy it. It's a strange transaction, right? Buying land, you will probably never occupy yourself. And not just that, buying a field while you are in prison and you can't even get out to go live in it or, you know, occupy it in any way, it's strange. It's not what we would call a wise investment. We would, you know, if you were in this situation, you'd be like, I don't think I want to spend my money on a field that I don't get to go enjoy that I can't ever take control of, that's overrun by the enemy, that the Babylonian army is camping on, not a good thing. I think it's a waste of money. I mean, at least from the worldly perspective, right? You're not going to look at that and think of it's wise. But, I mean, the title that Jeremiah got for the land, completely useless. Everyone who was watching him because it said that there was a whole bunch of people who were witness to the transaction. Everyone who was watching them would have thought that Jeremiah was crazy. Except, of course, Jeremiah himself. He didn't think he was crazy. Why? Because God told him to purchase the land. It was that simple. Right? Matter of fact, Jeremiah goes on to say in verse 17, he says, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And later, just like 10 verses later, the God actually answers Jeremiah and repeats back to him. And he says, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? That's his response to Jeremiah. What he's saying is, you're right, Jeremiah. Nothing is too hard for me. Nothing at all. So if God tells you to purchase land in the midst of a battlefield that's overrun by the enemy, your response should be, where do I sign? Right? Right? The world's going to tell you it's foolish. <clears throat> Your family may tell you the same thing, right? If you came to me and you told me something like this, I might even think you're crazy. But if God tells you to do it, you do it, right? Run, don't walk, do it. Can someone get me a drink of water, please? <coughs> From something, yeah. Thank you. See, the truth of God's word sounds like foolishness to those who are lost. Like it tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. <coughs> yeah. Can you pour it from that big jug without spilling it all over the table? Where's my water bottle? All right. All right. Listen, there is a time coming, and it may be here already, when people, even Christians, you may know, thank you, 
are not going to tolerate the truth. It tells us in 2 Timothy, For a time is coming when people will not endure sound doc teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off in the mist. Listen, King Zedekiah did not want to hear the truth of what Jeremiah had to say. Right? A lot of people are walking around with fingers in their ears and their eyes closed today going, la, 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 I don't hear you, I don't see you, I don't want to hear a thing you're saying. That was like the king's response to Jeremiah. That being said, even if most people aren't listening, the truth is we can't stop proclaiming the truth of God's word. And, and so we can hopefully, hopefully open their eyes to the hope that's found in Jesus and save them from the wrath to come. Right, the point is, is that we as Christians have to tell the truth regardless of the consequences, yet with that also be a reminder to them that the present troubles as they are surrounded by evil and the enemy are not the end, that there is hope. In that sense, we are to be like the field that Jeremiah purchased. Okay? Why do I say that? Well, let's finish reading some in Jeremiah chapter 32 here, starting with verse 36. It says, this is what God says about Jeremiah purchasing the field. He says, Now therefore, says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the city of which you say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence, behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in this great indignation, and I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon the people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Fields shall be bought in this land of which you are saying it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Fields shall, fields shall be bought for money, and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin, in the places about Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of Shepala, and in the cities of Negeb, for I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. So this is what the Lord is telling him. You're buying that land to proclaim to Israel that there is a future and that I will redeem them. That's what that land is all about. Right? Jeremiah purchasing a field was a sign to Israel that God is going to redeem them. Right? That one day, despite their current situation, despite that they're under siege by the Babylonians, despite the fact that they're surrounded by the enemy and they're going to fall into their hands, right? God will bring them back into the land and they will dwell in safety. That's what, why Jeremiah purchased the field. God says that they shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will make with them an everlasting covenant. God says that I will put the fear of me, I will put the fear of God in their hearts, and they will not turn from me. God will one day plant them in that land in faithfulness. God will one day deliver them from evil. 
That's what he was telling Israel. That's why Jeremiah, while he was in prison, bought that field in Ananoth that he's never going to see. He's never going to build a house on. He's never going to put his feet on, even though it's in his hometown. That he can't even get out of jail to go enjoy. That's overrun by the enemy. He bought that field to show them that God will redeem them. And they will one day be able to come back and be planted in the land. That field was a sign of hope. That field was a sign of redemption. And we are to be like that field to the world that's around us. I mean, for us, just think of it this way, right? Like the field that Jeremiah bought, you are a witness. You are a sign. You are living testimony to the faithfulness of God and to the truth of God's word. You are a picture of God's redemption. And guess what? God has purchased you. God has redeemed you. He owns you, title and deed. And now you stand in a land that is surrounded, that has been overtaken by evil, that is overrun by the enemy, that is at war, and at least as it seems from a worldly perspective anyway, is in total desolation. Right? We're doomed. Right? This year is worse than the year before. It's going to be worse next year. Right? It could very well be true. Right? Evil is strutting down the street in a Saturday night suit, whistling a tune, luring children to their doom like the Pied Piper. It's true. They're not ashamed of it. Right? Evil is unashamed. It's living in the White House. Whether you like that or not, the world is a huge mess. It's depressing. Absolutely. It's absolutely depressing. If you're not depressed, you're not paying attention or you don't have a heart. Right? Listen, the birth pains are so close together that the tribulation has to be just around the corner. But there's a rapture first. And so the worldly perspective, the hearts of many out there today is all is lost and there is no hope. But it's not true. It's not true. There is hope, right? Trust in the Lord, do good, as it says in Psalms 37, 3, dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Your purpose, saints, is to remind people, is to be that reminder, is to be that sign that hope is real, that hope is coming, and that hope is found in Jesus. Right? First Peter 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Despite how foolish it may sound, despite how foolish it may look, despite the fact that many may rebuke you or mock you or ignore you or outright dismiss you, it doesn't change a thing. If God tells you to buy a field in the middle of nowhere that's surrounded by the enemy, that's overrun by evil, while you're in jail for telling the truth, buy it. Let it stand. Be out there as a sign of God's redemption and hope for the people who think that there is none. Continue to show them and point them to the fact that hope is found in Christ Jesus. 
even in the midst of everything else crazy that is going on. Jesus said in John 16, 33, most people know this verse. It says, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But what does he say? What does he say? He says, but be of good cheer. Right, he says that afterwards. He says, I have overcome the world. But right before that, he says, but be of good cheer. Because he has overcome the world. Are we out there cheerful? Right. We need to be because Jesus has overcome the world. Right? So be of good cheer. Even when it seems like the world is burning down around us. Don't look at the fire maps, right? I mean, it's scary how many things are on fire right now. Even when it seems like all things are falling apart at record pace, you can't even keep up with it. We can stand and point people to the redemption that is found in Christ Jesus. And that's what we need to continue to do. That's your message. That's what we will continue to do as a church. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this word. And I pray, Lord, that you just continue the work that's in and through us, that you will continue to build us up, strengthen us, so that we can do just that. Stand in the midst of the enemy Stand in the midst of the evil. Stand out there in the midst of the darkness that is so prevalent today and be a light that shines and says there is hope. And we can point people to Jesus. I pray, Lord, that your spirit continue to strengthen us up and give us the words and embolden us to do just that. I thank you for this, Lord. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.